0: Hello, this is Jim to you coming to you from my home during this coronavirus pandemic during the lockdown It's early in the morning. This is my favorite time of day. It's 8 30 sun is just now starting to come up That's pretty well up. It's, it's just starting to come down and, and shine onto my terrace outside I'm having my coffee it's good. It's all downhill from here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for some reason, the morning is great. I wake up feeling so excited. It seems like it's the, it's hitting the reset button every single night. It's great, but as the day progresses, it's kind of like I, I think. So we're we're about six weeks into the the shelter in place. I've been under quarantine for. Yeah, at, at least that long. I I started not leaving my apartment. I just hold myself up before the shelter in place became official because I wasn't working. And yeah, it it's I I think I think I'm having trouble fooling my brain. I think I'm having trouble saying to it, look, uh, we're fine here. I think it's it it's just. It knows, and it refuses to be fooled. It's aware that it's been, like, six weeks since I've had, like, any kind of meaningful interpersonal interaction with anyone. And it's just starting to mess with my head. So as the day wears on, I just, like, I I have, I get to mid-afternoon and I have to, like, take a siesta. Like, I just have to, like, lie down, get some rest. I wake up again, it's like a reset the second half of the day proceeds the same way. It's like, ooh, second wind, afternoon, dinner. I don't know. I enjoy recording these things. This is this is a weird mix of... I, I, I don't know what this is. I was reading uh, Carl Jung's uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And there's a chapter in there on psychological types. And I was reading it, and it's talking about like the difference between introverts and extroverts, like sort of that function like how does a person where does a person get their energy from? Is it from outside themselves, from other people, or do they get it from their inner self And as he went on and sort of started touching upon the other functions of the personality, I realized he was talking about the Myers Briggs way of looking at people. like, uh, So I'm an INFP. Which I, I think translates roughly to way too goddamn sensitive. Um, but I realized he's not talking about Myers-Briggs because what he's writing comes way before Myers-Briggs. And, and it occurred to me, I'm reading a summation of the original idea like this, this derives from what Jung said. Uh, I, I, I had never thought about it before. I never thought I, I knew about Myers Briggs, but I never thought where did this come from? Where did this originate? So I just happened upon uh, this chapter in this book, written for the layperson and about where it uh, where it originated. And so, yeah, I, I'm more of an introvert I more need to like withdraw into myself and get attuned uh on a regular basis but that's certainly not to say I don't enjoy talking to other people I think I do need other people to draw energy from like I do need those interactions hence I'm starting to go a little stir crazy I saw the movie The Lighthouse like last October I was looking for I, I, I was really into like watching scary movies at the theater. I went to see Dr. Sleep. But I went to see The Lighthouse because it was described as psychological horror instead of something being overtly gory. And that was a really slow-paced disturbing film. Like two guys stranded on an island. One of the actors is Willem Dafoe. The other one don't know but they're stuck tending a lighthouse on an island one of them is senior to the other and they do their they do their shift it's like a, a i forget how long six weeks three months some duration of time they're there tending this lighthouse and when the time comes for them to switch out when they're supposed to be replaced, their replacements don't come. So they're just stuck on the island, I think due to the storm. And there's some vague supernatural elements to it. Like there's mermaid imagery, although this is never really explained. Uh, But these guys just go nuts and end up getting at each other's throats. You kind of see pretty early on where it's headed, uh, but it doesn't mean that the ending is any less disturbing and it it's weird to watch like you feel like you're losing your mind while you're watching it this is not a film you want to watch during quarantine if you're feeling cooped up like you can't get out not something you want to ugh yeah but yeah so i saw somebody post a a, a, a on twitter the question was, like, the character Willem Defoe. like, basically six, no, like, nine expressions of him from the film. From, like, the lowest level of normal to, like, the highest degree of insanity. It's like, where are you factoring in on the Willem Defoe from Lighthouse scale? Just how nuts are you going sheltering in place? <laughs> uh Way too fitting. Don't watch The Lighthouse until after this is all blown over. It's, uh, it's a good film if you're into like psychologically creepy horror. That director, the guy who made The Lighthouse, had another one. I think it was called Witch? Witcher? I feel like one of these is something you shouldn't watch because it's just some terrible... TV show. I'm talking about the movie. There's a movie called Witch by the same director, which is about. It's a story about a family during the Salem witch trials and a witch somehow. I I couldn't get through that. I actually bought that. Watched the first half an hour and I couldn't follow what was going on, not least of all because I couldn't understand what the characters were saying. I was assured it was a very very good movie, but I'm. I I I don't have the attention span for. Some kinds of movies, certain kind of kinds of things just don't speak to me. Uh, really artsy films, things that are like intentionally slow, intentionally well-paced, like drawn out. There's just some films I can't get into, and I, I, I don't really give them much of a chance. Like if I'm watching something, like I, the, the question is how long do you, how long do you watch until you give up on it? I don't know, but there's, the thing is there are so many movies, there are so many TV shows out there that it really is easiest just to abandon something relatively early. For me, it's I, I think once I get far enough into the film and I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on here, as soon as I realize that whatever happens next is not going to be significant because... Like the thread of what's going on, I've completely lost. I'm not following at all. I think that's the point at which I, I just give up. Say, so, you know, this was a good ride so far, but... am going to disembark here. I'm going to deplane and uh, trek somewhere else. But this whole process, I like doing this. I like uh, just... But it's somewhere between being an introvert and being an extrovert. Because it's it's the thing is you have to like be outgoing. Like I can't just sit here and like think for long stretches of time. I, I'm generally aware that I'm talking to a nebulous audience out there. If anyone is listening to this, I, I don't think anyone ever will. But just kind of assuming that there's some set of strangers out there you may eventually be talking to and you have to keep this thing going Uh, but at the same time you're not like pressured to conform to any sort of norm outside of just you have to keep talking so it's this weird mix of focusing your energy outward but having to draw energy from inward It's this weird middle ground, and it feels perfect to me, almost. I I do wish I had somebody else to do it with. I can see why, if you have a podcast, you you would want to have regular guests to kind of infuse it with some other personality. Or if I had some other regular uh, person that I did this with, it was just a pair of us always doing it. I think that would make it, probably a lot more, it'd be nice to just be able to sit back and let somebody else drive the car for a bit, you know, or like somebody else says like, hey, you're still driving, you're still steering, but here's, here's a direction we go. Let somebody else help navigate. My brain tends to jump right to intellectual topics and... I'm trying to think about those less. I'm trying to like bring some levity into things. And I I know people who are much better at that than me. So I'm trying not to like sit here and dwell uh, at great length about whatever might be going through my head. But I certainly don't quite know how to, I don't know, talk pop culture, pop music, pop anything. I don't know. This was easier when I was in college. It just seemed like, yeah, it's always always easier when you're younger. You just sort of like go out and you'll find people that you can engage with. You don't necessarily have to be good at it, but just, you're immersed in popular culture. People are joking. People don't take things seriously. I do miss that about college. I miss, what I miss about college is the ability to go out and just engage with all kinds of random people. And just by virtue of being on this campus, you're all like, you're all in the same place. You're in the same environment. You all have roughly the same goals and everybody has so much disposable time on their hands. Everybody's like willing to engage with anyone else. Just looking to learn, looking for new ideas. I love, I did not, I I took advantage of that. I definitely sought out new conversations when I was there, but I, I don't, I don't think I quite fully took advantage of it. I would do it slightly differently. If I had the chance to go back. But yeah, as you get older, like I'm 37, I'm 38 next month. As you get up there, it's like people tend to just fall into their groove. People are just married. They have kids. They have their job. They develop a worldview. They get situated in it. And they're not really looking to have that challenged. which I think you have to do I think you can just in kind of a flighty way this is definitely one of my weaknesses just sort of like running around sampling different subjects like I want to learn about all kinds of stuff I'll pick a topic seemingly at random but there's always some relevancy there's always some way anything can tie into my life tie into some goal that I loosely have. I'm going to start learning about it. I think that's my passion. I just like, there's a question that somebody posed to me. And by somebody, I mean like one of the dating apps I was on two years ago. So kind of a person said like, what would you, What would you do if you were just independently wealthy and you, you, you don't need to work? You can basically spend your time doing whatever you want. Uh, this was a pretty easy answer for me. It was, um, I think I would just be in college. Like all the time, just constantly. I would just get degrees. I'd, I'd get graduate degrees in all kinds of things. Probably at least one PhD. And probably spend my time, some of my time, I don't know how much, but some of it teaching uh, as well. I wish I could do that. Um, And I I probably would do entrepreneurship in there. Like I'd try to acquire practical knowledge. I would try and figure out how to apply it. But I think being in that environment, just being surrounded by I don't know, surrounded by those kinds of people, like exploring new ideas. But the thing is, I'm just not. I don't think pure academia really would, I don't know, be that interesting to me. On the one hand, it's like if you just sit around and discussing thoughts, like just pure philosophy, like what if you did this? what does this mean? And you're just teaching, like you're just dealing completely in abstract ideas without ever trying to do anything with them. I, I can only do so much of that. I'd start like pushing for doing stuff instead of just pushing for the development and elaboration of ideas. And yet, if I get into like a, a situation that's the exact opposite, where people are not really thinking, not really seeking out new ideas, but they just want to to execute. You know, like the Silicon Valley, like let's just let's just do, go go go, try to do something, try to make something. And I'd be like, well, oh, this is this is when I want to step back and try to develop some deep knowledge about something. This is how I cross correct, because I'm con- contrarian. Like I try to like be the balance. Like if, if there's some extreme in a group of people, I try to do the opposite. I'm just trying to like place the anchor somewhere else. I'm trying to, t- I try to be like a, another f- like foci, just spread the ellipse in some direction. Which sometimes I manage, sometimes that's a successful contribution to the group. Like it actually is expanding things, but sometimes you're just, you're not an, another focal point. You're just another point that's not necessarily in the existing circle. I have mixed success with trying to do this. But yeah, ideally I'd be always learning. And I would be in a learning environment and I would be teaching. But there would definitely be some practical aspect to it. Like I I understand that it's like, so if it were computer science, for example, uh it would be it would be nice to like I understand what computer science should be. It it's it has nothing to do with you, you build something with the intent of releasing it. It's not necessarily practical. You're supposed to cover the theoretical and have people write code and get the, the foundational concepts. And, you know, teach them the underlying math and have them do proofs, etc. Like there's value in the theoretical. I certainly wouldn't want to throw that away. If if I were going to teach, my preference would be on, I guess, one level above that. Where you're trying to figure out how to apply your knowledge to a practical idea and develop a practical idea. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know. I guess I... I I'm in this tortured middle ground between people seem to insist that everything has to have value. Somebody asked, uh, one of the guys who was working uh, at the Large Hadron Collider looking for the Higgs boson, before they had discovered it, I saw this in a documentary, but prior to them finding the Higgs boson, somebody asked the question, what, what is the use of this? What is the practicality? How can we, what can we make from this? And he was, he was the the answer from this physicist, this particle physicist, was just to say we don't know, we don't have any idea. It was like when they were when they were uncovering the principles of electromagnetism, of quantum mechanics, figuring out the structure of atoms and how they f- form bonds with each other. Like had no idea how any of this would apply. They didn't realize, okay, you can take this. And you can create radio towers and radio receivers and broadcast signals at a great distance. And then there'll be an imagery component attached to it later. You'll have television being broadcast out and you'll be able to, to make solid state transistors that will allow us to make computation machines that are very small the physicists of the early 20th century were not looking at this in economic terms. They were not saying, well, if we do this, we're going to be able to patent all of these things and it will basically give birth to some unprecedented era of extremely powerful technology that will facilitate so much of what we see today. And it seems like that that thinking has overtaken us. It's certainly overtaken me. Like the question is always, If I investigate this question, if I try to develop this idea, how am I going to make money from it? How is this going to be sustainable in economic or financial terms? I guess it's just that I spent so long running in entrepreneurial circles that this is just the first question I have. If I work on this problem, how am I going to make money from it? I'm trying to think about things that are not that. Um, figuring out how to stretch my brain the other way, so that I'm just interested in things for. Well, I am interested in things just for the sake of things. I think when it's in terms of consumption, I'll consume anything. Like I will get a. I will get a book about just about any subject, especially ones. That tie in directly to my life, and it does not have to tie in too directly. It can be a pretty loose connection. Something's, uh, you know, very very theoretical. Like I started learning about molecular biology. I read some books about that a few years ago because I had this sense in my mind that okay, physics is kind of. I think we've done physics enough for now. Like There have not been advances in physics for a very long time. There hasn't been anything new or significant that's emerged that seems promising, that will shed light on how things work at a fundamental level that will allow us to do anything new. We're not done. That is certainly the case. I I don't want to say, like every generation says, everything that has been discovered, everything that can be discovered, that could theoretically be discovered by somebody, we've uncovered all of that, so we're done. That is, of course, not not true. Um, And I would certainly say in terms of physics, we've probably uncovered more than we have actually figured out how to put into practice. I think there's a large body of scientific knowledge that hasn't been applied anywhere yet, That could theoretically be applied, but I mean, physics is. If you look at the standard model, if you look at general relativity, like you could figure out how to unify unify those things. I I I sincerely doubt that string theory is going to do it. The current field theories just don't hold a lot of promise. They seem I don't know too much like solutions in search of a problem. They're just the problem is ill defined. I don't see where we could go with that, but I I had, I got this idea in my head and it's not really my idea. Um, I originally got this from Freeman Dyson, but the notion that in the 20th century, we domesticated physics, we figured out natural laws, how these little subatomic particles work, uh, nuclear physics, uh, electrons, how they operate in orbitals, how they absorb energy in quantized little packets and then release it and uh basically the 21st century things will shift towards leaning on the fundamentals of biology so instead of instead of solid-state transistors, instead of silicon doped with a, you know, boron and phosphorus and arranged in such a way so that you can get an electron gate, which effectively is a transistor, you, you have something that is based in the principles of biology. And I, I wonder what that looks like. I wonder how you actually harness that. Um, One of the examples I hear is that you could use DNA, like basically a string of nucleotide bases as storage. And that is so small that you could encode a lot of information in there. And since you're working with uh, four possible uh, bases instead of two, you can encode more information than just binary, much more compactly. Now, I don't know how you actually stabilize that. Like the thing is, silicon that is doped, you, you basically do lithography, you create patterns, you layer them on top of each other in such a way, you put electricity through it, roughly speaking. that That is stable. You apply current to this uh, specially arranged silicon, and you get a little CPU. You have the basis of a computer. And it can just you can remove the current from it and then come back to it. That's very easy to miniaturize and it's not going to in the short term or the the short to midterm, it won't decay. It's going to function just fine. Uh nucleic acid, like strings of DNA, those those denature under less than optimal conditions, essentially the conditions you need in order to keep DNA stable from falling apart are very, very specific. It's not It's not immediately clear right now how you would take that and package it up in some sort of little thing that you could put in your pocket and carry around with you. Outside of a certain temperature range, uh, it gets destroyed or falls apart, it becomes inoperable. And same thing with the process of how you, you can store stuff in DNA. Uh, but the question is, how do you, how do you actually retrieve it? Like if it's a question of storage, that's, that's one thing, but how do you query to see what the information is? You want a particular Wikipedia page that's stored in DNA. How do you get that text? How do you get the information for the images that are on that page? So I think we're a long way away from this, but maybe five years ago when I was looking into it, it it felt like it it could be much closer. Much in the way people are looking into quantum computing now, like how we use qubits to possibly uh, develop new cryptographic systems and and break the security of existing ones. Uh, Yeah, those sorts of things leaning on them for real randomness instead of pseudo-randomness. The potential is there, but I'm not sure that the time has actually come for mass application. I don't know if... Getting the hardware to work, first of all, is the first challenge. I don't think we're quite there. There are interesting ideas about how to do that. Uh, Ion traps... But I, I don't think it's not right around the corner. I don't I don't think in five years we're gonna we're gonna see quantum computers creeping into people's homes. It's probably decades away, if that. And really it seems it seems like the idea of a quantum computer is more more for uh institutions. It seems like a I suppose that's the way everything starts, right? Computers didn't find their way into the home. Mainframes were developed in the 40s. People were programming on them. They did, It wasn't until the 1980s where people started saying, yeah, it would be nice to have one of these in my house so I can play games. So there's the first step of like, there actually is a novel use of quantum computers that's the economics of it makes sense. It's worth it for a company to buy one and they have it and they can use it. And then slowly it advances in the technology, lead it to some number of decades later, yeah, people want one of these in their home, probably for some entertainment purpose, maybe educational, maybe practical. It's hard to imagine what that would be because you you wouldn't you wouldn't have something like Microsoft Office uh, like I need this uh, I need a quantum computer to do my my spreadsheets to, you know do my taxes crunch these numbers and figure things out like Lotus one two three like n- nothing like that just for the business applications seem awfully limited you wouldn't be working in a cubicle on a quantum computer just because quantum computers quantum computers are not designed to replace the computers we have now they're they're orthogonal to uh, the, the computers we have now they serve certain functions but it's not as though if you could upgrade your computer to a quantum computer it would perform better in all aspects quantum computers are very specialized and so that based on what we know right now uh, about their potential how they can be developed basically what i what i know about them i don't know much uh, it wouldn't it's not as though we're going to see these things yeah you know, proliferate anytime soon i think it's the same thing with biology i think if you want to say If you want to say, how can we do exactly what we're doing now using um, molecular biology and its principles instead of solid state physics, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I don't think biology is going to replace physics. I think our technology is going to look roughly the same and future improvements to it in the next few decades are probably going to be driven only by physics. We'll keep using transistors the way we have been. We'll keep making them smaller until we can't make them any smaller, until we hit that floor. I don't actually know why computers have to keep getting faster and why they have to keep getting smaller. I guess video games require a lot of computation. But for most people, they don't need that. Like, you don't... I mean, do you? I guess the thing is, I guess it's the, the growth of JavaScript. Yeah, this is, this has been a trend. I'm, this, is some, this is the reason people push for, I think this is the reason JavaScript has become like the language to introduce new developers to. I'm sure that largely happened by accident. I'm sure that wasn't planned. And it, you know, like nobody st- stood up and said, "We're going to use JavaScript as a means of onboarding an entire generation of junior developers who want to make it an happen, work in Silicon Valley, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I'm sure it wasn't. A, it's not conspiratorial. Some there is not a, a committee of men in a dark conference room somewhere, all wearing trench coats and. Curling their mustaches, uh, saying, "You know, well, it's going to be JavaScript." But I can see the powers that be deciding that it should be JavaScript. And if it's not a committee, like basically, the economics tend towards that way because that favors that favors existing technology so much. Yeah, I never thought about this, but the idea is. If you have stuff being done in JavaScript instead of on the server, and I don't know who's listening to this. if you're still listening to this, you probably understand all this because i you got through the the ranting and rambling about quantum computing but roughly speaking you you have you have two computers. Uh, in the equation when you're browsing a website, you have your computer and you have the computer that you're accessing or to get the stuff from your computer is connecting to the other one, downloading it, and then rendering it inside of the browser. Uh, there are two places where the work is being done on this other computer and on your computer in the browser. so you can have the work being done on the server, and when that happens. Whoever runs the, that computer, whoever is hosting that, it would be the person that is running the website that you are accessing. That's going to be computing resources that they are paying for. So the extreme of this is if you, if you build a web page, uh, you know, the way it used to be done before we had Ajax and JavaScript, you would, the page would be built with whatever data it needed, and it would send it to you uh, pretty much as is. The browser would basically take that and and figure out how to render it. Um, A lot of that is moving from the server side to the browser. So JavaScript basically facilitates, you get a minimum of things, like you get the data and you get structure, the presentation layer, and then JavaScript does a lot to assemble it And if there's computation that needs to happen, it can happen in the browser. So processing that would, you basically, you send the data to the server, it does some computation and then sends the result back. Instead, it can just happen within JavaScript on your computer. It would make total sense that companies would want to back this, especially the large ones, because they're responsible for paying for that if you have the server doing computation you're, you're using up cpu cycles to service your website then you are incurring the cost of doing that work on the server side if you can move all of that to the to a person's computer you can move that to javascript then it's it's exercising the person's laptop instead it's using their cpu cycles they're paying for the electricity uh that's being used in order to do the work and we're not talking about a lot of money here we're not talking about you know even dozens of dollars a month i don't think but it it, it adds up um if if you are doing the work of let's say a fifty thousand people that are accessing your website if you're if you can minimize the amount of computation you're doing you can drastically decrease your costs and people are generally not going to like the the amount it will cost the consumer in terms of electricity consumption on their own computer is going to be negligible and the other side of this is uh, this this does re- This means as things get more and more client-side, as things become more JavaScript-heavy and more complex things are being done on laptops, then you're going to have to continually upgrade your hardware. People who sell hardware would want to advocate for this because things will get slower as time goes on. People naturally want to upgrade to, to stay... Up with what's going on. Yeah, this actually makes a lot of sense. JavaScript. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get it. it. seemed like just a historical accident. It's certainly not the. If I were going to teach somebody computer science via uh, some programming language. Like a very hands-on way. I, I would not choose JavaScript. There are subtleties to that language that really only make sense if you, if you, if you understand the principles of it in relation to some other language you are already familiar with. This is how I learned it and it was slightly more approachable given that. I don't know. might be different now. JavaScript was naturally messy. I remember like learning how to write JavaScript properly. This is like in 2008, 2009. Uh, somebody's explaining to me like the, the scope of a response from an AJAX call inside of a, you know, your success callback. If anyone out there is following me, bravo. Uh, but I, I, I found it very confusing. I was imagining it was imperative. You have a JavaScript file top to bottom. This code here makes a call and it, it it's you, you set this variable when you get the response and then right below that you could have code that uses that variable. And it's like, well, no. No, you, you can't count on the response having been returned from the server when the code below the AJAX call executes. You only have access to that information inside of uh, inside of the callback, inside of the function you're defining to handle the server's response when it comes back. And this was before people were using promises. So the code you had to write looked very, very ugly. You'd end up with this, this these nested callback, this, this callback soup. And it looked awful. And it just, as I was writing it and it looked awful, I kind of felt like I was doing something wrong. And somebody explained to me, like, no, here, you, here's, here's the way you're, this is the way you're supposed to do it. It, it. It's supposed to look just this inelegant. Although you could you could define the callbacks above, and you know you could you could make it look slightly better, but it certainly wasn't as easy to follow as the promise-based approach that we now use. yeah maybe maybe it's maybe it's easier. maybe there are fewer gotchas that are'll that hit if you're just learning JavaScript from scratch now. Maybe the language is richer. It's hard to know. you only get to to enter into uh learning you know a, a given technology once at some particular point. Once you once you become good at it, once you know it to keep yourself up on it, it's like you can't you can't go back to I don't know anything and I'm approaching it again for the first time. Which is actually something of of a of a of a pitfall. This has been for me because I pick up I pick up a JavaScript book, and this is not true now. I, I suppose. Things have changed so much now that if I pick up a JavaScript book, most of what I'm reading is novel. Like the language has just undergone so many revisions. But when I was like five years in, I would pick up a a JavaScript book, even an advanced one, and most of what's in there is stuff I already know. It was treading the same ground. And the problem is, is that a lot of that information in there in your average advanced JavaScript book was stuff that I didn't know and needed to learn. But you get to a point where you have to slog through so much that you already do know, it's it's difficult to get motivated to power through and find the pockets that are new to you. This sounds like a backdoor brag. Oh I mean, it's it's hard to learn about the advanced aspects of the, of a subject when you just already know so much. Yeah. I, I'm sounding like a douche here. But anyway, so JavaScript, I think that this makes sense. Of course they'd want it that way. People complain about this. But uh it really is it really is a bummer that you you, you have to basically get a whole new device every so often. If your battery starts, the last iPhone I had, the battery just started, it couldn't hold a charge. I basically had to carry around a power pack at all times. And at some point I upgraded the, the OS and it just, it became impossible to use. It wouldn't register clicks or gestures correctly. I was like, well, I, I just, out of necessity, I have to go get a new one. It lasted three years, and the one that I had before it lasted four, and that one I lost. I think I lost that one somewhere in Ireland. Well, I know exactly where in Ireland I was. It was I was in the airport. I didn't go anywhere and. Yeah, I had a layover in Ireland, in Dublin, on the way back from Europe when I was in uh the Basque country. Anglet and Bayonne. I visited a friend of mine invited me, we went over there for he just let me crash with him in his in his family's place for like a month. Salad dude. Uh but I had a layover in Dublin on the way back and I kind of assumed, I left a night like it, it was actually cheaper to do it this way that you fly in one day, you're there for a night and then you fly out the next day. And I didn't make any arrangements uh prior to arriving. I kind of thought I'm going to show up I'll drive uh I'll drive to a hotel. I'll book a room, and then explore the city a bit. And I got there, and it turns out like everything was booked up. I don't know why. It was just the. It was the middle of summer. I I don't. I never figured out if anything was actually going on. But every hotel in the city, every Airbnb, was. I couldn't get an answer from any of them. All all the hotels were full. There were no vacancies anyplace. And so, I don't know, as, as, as the evening approached, I, I realized, okay, I, I need to figure out where I'm sleeping and there doesn't seem to be any options. And I'm not really the kind of guy who's gonna go around start asking strangers, hey, can I come crash at your house? So I I went to the car rental place. I rented the largest car I could for one day. Like an SUV. Or some Yeah, it was an SUV, a big uh, maybe a mini SUV. And just uh parked it in the airport parking lot on the roof, kind of out of the way. And put the seats down in the back and I just I just made that I slept there that night. And uh yeah, I ended up meeting some people. Like I, I met a guy who worked I want to say security, maybe he was a thrower in the airport. And so the the airport bar, we just sat outside and um yeah, just just drank whiskey and Guinness like stereotypically we just got uh got pleasantly buzzed and there was a couple people he knew actually i don't know if he knew them but we met some people who were coming from a soccer game in london and they joined us for a while anyway yeah i i I don't really remember this is one of those times like it it's it's Ireland. So of course this happens. I, I don't remember getting back to the car, but I do remember waking up the next day in the car and uh, yeah. Like, okay. Drive the car back down a couple of floors and drop it off and uh, go catch your flight. That was my Ireland experience. And somewhere in that I think it was that night. Um, I I lost my phone. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, phones don't um, phones don't last. It's uh. Yeah, but I but I do wonder when we'll get there. When the whole sustainability thing, like we realize it's just, it's not a good way of doing this. You're just going to throw out a phone and get an entirely new one every time instead of just being able to like piecemeal upgrade the thing. At the very least be able to replace the battery, which is more than likely going to be the first thing to go. batteries that is uh that is one of the more interesting areas of technology imagine tesla's working on that there are their are power packs in the walls batteries have not kept up with moore's law this is why the devices are so small but like the biggest component in them is a battery it's this lithium ion lithium polymer thing, it's just massive, your, your, your iPhone could be so small if not for I suppose the, the battery and the screen, but of course the screen is what draws most of the power, if it, if it was a smaller screen, if you didn't need a screen to be powered that way, the battery could last a very long time, like the Kindles But you 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 need some minimum amount of. I guess it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, useful equilibrium. You have just enough screen space to make the thing usable. It's not just this tiny little Apple Watch uh, screen, and the battery uh, powers that, and it's just flat. So it backs it. Yeah, this all makes sense now. All of it. I get it. It's suddenly all clear. Sometimes I talk myself into very obvious points. I'm like, oh yeah. I started off with a question. It turns out the answer was just mind-numbingly obvious. Doesn't go anywhere. This is why I need somebody to do this whole thing with to talk they they, they would catch it like you know, here's the simple answer. This doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be a thing that we talk about, you know. I don't know. It's um definitely gotten better at expressing myself like at finding the words when i'm talking to other people i'll find that they'll be trying to articulate a concept they'll be saying like well so it's 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 like this there's this you know um and i'll just say you mean this like this particular here's the concept from statistics that you're trying to describe in simple language and like yeah basically that idea um or yeah, just finding the words. Like here, here's a simple phrase that describes the concept you're you're kind of stumbling towards. Although it's easier to do that as a listener. Like the same thing happens with me. If I'm like talking through something, my brain's just not quite getting to. It's focused on thinking. It's focused on trying to make the point. And like the other person's like, as a spectator, you can easily see it. Like there's a much simpler way of phrasing this. My brain has more cycles. While you're trying to keep your brain talking. Yeah. Where's I going with this? Where was I? Where did I come from? Who are we? Yeah. Anyway, I do have... I'm working my way through Carl Jung's collected works. And one of the ones I got... Recently, I ordered this from a third party vendor on Amazon. I've been trying to like not order any books unless I really feel I I need them. And in the interim, I'm doing a lot of introspective soul searching, uh, trying to figure myself out. But I got, I got one of Carl Jung's collective works. It's, I think it's volume six. And it is about, uh, it's basically a deep dive into the, psychological types the personality types so that one chapter i was reading on introversion and extroversion it's basically the extended group of writings he has about that in particular i kind of thought this would be useful for like figuring myself out like getting some perspective on who i am thumbing through it i'm not entirely sure that it will be as much as the other things that i have of his but maybe He kind of goes through the historical question of at at different times and places before there was a a modern field of objective psychology, people were still practicing something like psychology and people were still trying to figure out what makes a person a person in relation to other people. Like if you're going to discretize human behavior, like 16 different personality types from Myers-Briggs or 32 in case of the five-factor personality, basically like some number of bits you can flip one way or the other. And all those combinations make up a personality. Each one is a personality. Um, People have always been doing that, just not not with the scientific rigor that we do. So he's talking about how has it been done in the past, which is somewhat interesting. If there's one thing I don't understand, it might be people, but I'm also somewhat, I'm, I'm pretty sure that like my understanding of people, if I want to develop it, is not going to come from me reading something in a book and just sort of like uh, intellectually processing and absorbing it. This is again the question between theoretical and applied. Uh, I feel like I don't. There's there's some requisite level of knowledge of people that I'm lacking because I never really had the correct perspective in my social interactions, the correct understanding. I really operated under such a grave misapprehension for so long about you know my relation to other people, and them to me, and them to each other how this was all supposed to work, that I, I really didn't learn the lessons. And I think this is what I, I set out to do I, a couple months ago when I left my job and just said I want to go out and engage with the world. It was It was with the express purpose of doing this. It was like I'm just going to put myself out there I'm not going to hide, I'm going to make mistakes because you have to make mistakes, you have to screw up because this is how you learn. I like, I'm gonna do this with as many people as I can. I think I need to do that. I don't need to like study the Myers-Briggs things and figure out, once you know that, I don't know how what that gives you exactly? It's like Ken Robinson said. He's like, I don't think that there are uh, sixteen personality types. I think that there are six to seven billion personality types. And it's a it's a reduction of limited usefulness. If you do want to discretize people and say, well, they fall into these basic categories, sure, that does that does facilitate some level of understanding, but it's still. It's still some imperfect, you know, kind of mode of identity politics. I'm kind of playing that game, saying I understand you because you fit into this group. And there is value, as much as people say. I, I hear a lot of criticism about identity politics. This seems to be a common criticism of leftist ideology now, and. I, I could see, you can take that too far. You can just assume you know everything about a person when you meet them and you know some demographic data. Like you look at their Facebook profile, look at what they've checked off and you say, okay, I understand this person now because I've met those people before. You can take that too far and you can certainly use it to preclude yourself from understanding the person as an individual, but that information is not useless like understanding something about them does give you some, it's something of a guide. So it's not useless, but it's just hard to define where the balance is that is appropriate. I think I probably just, from my perspective, I just talked it through. Use those things as a guide, like understand you can, you can use these to like inform the questions you would ask. And possibly avoid asking questions that would offend, that seem unreasonable or over the top. But you you can't use it as a, okay, now I know who this is. A little more subtle than that. Don't assume you know a person until you get to know them. And even then, be careful, you probably don't know them. This is one of my favorite. So there, there's a, there's an old 1970s Soviet era thriller. It's a science fiction story called Solaris. And the original movie was confusing. I saw it and I. There's some surreal things going on here. It's like 2001: A Space Odyssey, but if you, it was remade by David Lynch in the 70s. Not quite that bad. Like you you can kind of follow what's going on. There is an overall plot and it resolves itself in a way that is it at least it it resolves. There's some semblance of closure. And it's not just all symbol. But it there was a remake done of it in two thousand two by some, was it? No, James Cameron produced it. I don't remember who the director was. I wanted to say Steven Soderbergh, but I think he directed Ocean's Eleven. It'd be strange if he doesn't seem like it's kind of, those two films are pretty incongruous, Ocean's Eleven and Solaris that you cannot, they both have George Clooney in them. Maybe this is how I'm drawing this. Anyway. Premises, there are, there's a group of people called out to investigate a space station that, a human space station that is orbiting a planet, or a planet called Solaris. And it's unclear what happened. They're investigating the disappearance of the crew. Um... Anyway, as they're up there on the ship, figuring it out, surrounding this planet, uh, people from their past who have deceased start materializing on the ship and interacting with them. And it focuses on George Clooney. His deceased wife from many years ago starts to come back, like reappear on the ship. You know, he, he wakes up and she's just there next to him in bed and talks to him and it's the planet it's the energy of the planet it's some force on the planet that is doing this Uh, they don't really explain why but seemingly to draw them in and I'm not sure that the point is to understand why like if you understood it's just a MacGuffin like the planet is doing this thing to them and it, it's not meant to be the focus. Like it, it doesn't explain anything about the universe if you know why the planet is doing this or how, but it's just what is it doing to the characters and what does it say about them? That sort of thing. The best science fiction reflects something about us and not, it doesn't try and build the universe just for the sake of, ooh, here's, here's something cool. Here are some neato robots. And the point is, is that the planet is generating these replicants. But the, but they're not like recreations of the people. Because the people are gone. The people are deceased. The planet doesn't have access to who George Clooney's wife was when she was alive. All it has access to is George Clooney's memories. And so it can only create a rendition of her. And her personality that is based entirely on what he knew about her. And this is, this is what makes the interactions interesting and limiting and confusing. And this is the point because this has, this is the point I like that Roger Ebert mentioned in his review, um, of the film is that the irony is our relationships in the real world with other people are just like that. We don't know the other person. What we know is the sum of what we think we know about the other person. And in this case, perhaps even empathy is of no use because perhaps we don't know how they feel. Maybe we just know how we would feel if we were them in their circumstances. The notion that people are largely defined in ways we can't understand by secrets they have that we will never know. Maybe they don't even know. And I've always operated with it. Like for the past, not always, but for the past 10 years since I read this and thought about it, I, I, I've put that into practice. I've, took, I've taken that to heart and tried to let it inform my interactions with other people. But there's a limit to what can be known about somebody else. So don't even try. Or don't assume you know more than you than you. That might be part of my issue. The thing is, is that in social situations, I tend to be pretty withdrawn. And I, I don't self-define. And it could be that I've just taken this notion that people are inherently unknowable just kind of as a means of respect. Like, I don't want to categorize you. I don't want you to believe you're one of 16 personality types. I'll treat you as an individual. But even then, you're still kind of nebulous, and there's a, there's a point past which I can't possibly get to know you. The lesson is futility. Like, I can't possibly know you deeply or even superficially in some important ways. So I'm just gonna let this interaction, I won't make any assumptions about you or draw any conclusions about you. I'll just let what's happening between us happen and suspend all judgment or discernment. And because I feel that way about other people, I feel it's the same way about me. What can I really reveal that they will understand one of the characteristics of my Myers-Briggs uh, type, the INFP, so there's a real fear of being misunderstood. And I definitely have that anxiety. I feel like when I say something and the other person draws the wrong conclusion or does the wrong thing based on what I'm telling them when they misunderstand, that is that's troubling for me. And I don't like that. So I guess I go out of my way to try not to misunderstand people, but my means of doing that is to, I don't know, just simply not, not try to understand, like, don't do it because you may screw it up. You're more likely to screw it up. I don't want to offend the other person by screwing it up. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And if you, if you assume that it's the other way for them, then you're not going to self-reveal. You're not going to offer much. Yeah. This makes sense. Yeah, this is a good point. i got to remember this. Anyway, where did I... Again, the, again, with the seriousness, I'm trying not to thunderously power through these like heavily introspective conversations about things what what else is going on i i got on happen um which is one of the dating apps uh it's like h a p p n it's just a typical you know tech company startup name just take a word and remove a vowel from it like from the end and then you get a word that's available still is common. Uh, Anyway, I was on, again, on this one back in January when I was on several of them. And like all the other ones, I was on it for a few weeks and then removed it because I realized this is just, this is the wrong way to meet people. I, I, yeah. I, but the, 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 I don't know, the gimmick, So I think what I'm looking at, the gimmick of this one is you, you keep it open on your phone while you're walking around and it's always logging your location. And other people who are frequenting the same locations as you, it will match you up with them. And I think the idea here is that if, if you go to a gym on a regular basis and there's somebody there that you'd want to strike up a conversation with but you don't have the nerve to do it in person you could theoretically if you're crossing paths you know a couple times they'll they'll appear on this feed and it will do it in such a way so as not to give away like where you live for example it tries to put some distance. Like it's not when you were at the same place at the exact same time. It tries not to say a person is, you know, uh, 300 feet away in one direction or another. Like it tries to discretize it, like blob, like group them in aggregate. So it, it doesn't point to, to exactly like any personal details. Just meant to be general. I guess to get rid of the stalker element, which I, I is of course a problem on all dating apps, I'm sure. But I realize this, this one could be valuable right now. Again, I'm only on the dating apps to try and pass some time, find some people to chat with and have conversations with um, during this whole pandemic situation. I am really looking forward to the pandemic alleviating itself Or I I guess me getting a job, and then I can delete those things. Just that's not a not a need I have in my life. I can get back to like engaging people, not on a device. But this one seems useful because I I posted on there like, look, not really looking to date. Here's a little bit about me. I'm looking to like find people close to me. Who wouldn't mind going to get exercise together? Like, let's take a walk on the Embarcadero. Go, go walk along the water, which is a couple blocks from me. And just, uh, yeah. Observe social distancing, wear facial coverings, but just, just get out and have some as close to face to face interaction as you could get right now. and that, that, I think that has a better chance of targeting people who are close to me than the other uh than the other apps we'll see i don't yeah we'll see how that goes but that's what i'm trying to do i've also started to wonder if i shouldn't get out and get exercise i have not been doing that i've i've gone out a couple times very very late at night like at midnight, I'll go out and i'll just take a walk face covered go walk, walk along the water, like where I used to stroll almost every day before this broke out and oh God, yeah, I don't know if it's enough i really I really would like to go out during the day when there's sunshine, when there's like some other people around. you can just like wave at them. There's a chance that maybe you strike up a conversation with a stranger, even from six feet away, just like yelling at each other. I don't know how that looks. But yeah, it's tricky. I- I'm jealous of my parents right now. They live in uh probably... A lot of the country lives in like suburban areas or rural areas like you can you can step out and and experience nature at great length as much as you want and you're not going to run into you you would probably encounter other people but it's it's not a a challenge to stay six feet away from them. Uh, I'm in such a dense urban area that you really can't. uh It's much more difficult to do that. If I step outside on the sidewalks, like there's potentially a lot of people. If everyone were deciding, you know, I think everyone's basically doing what I'm doing. Like I'm just going to stay inside and go out only if I have to. I think people are foregoing going out and jogging the way they used to. I do see people jogging, but it's not very many outside. I think people are just mostly staying inside I think that's that's probably the best strategy and it it is the best strategy i think if if everyone were going out and exercising as much as they used to, it would be much more difficult to to keep the distance. Uh, my parents were always very spendthrifty. They were very budget conscious, despite the fact that they had, I mean, they they had resources. Um, I mean, my dad was a high school teacher, so not fabulously wealthy, but you know, enough to like have like live very very comfortably. I was never worried about where my next meal was coming from. Um, but I remember them asking the question, like, what, what if every single family in, the, in America was like us? Like, what would, what would the economy look like? The economy is like driven by this growth, like the need for consistent growth. It's just constant. People need to get the new thing. They're not just buying something and then stretching it out as long as they can. They always need something new to consume. They're going out and spending a lot of money at Christmas time buying all the new things for, for their, like, it was very, very limited how we did that. It was like money conscious. And I always wondered about that. Like, what if, what if suddenly people were much more spendthrifty? I, I, I don't know. I, by necessity, have to be, I pay so much in rent living where I live, um, and i probably spend too much money on books like more than i have to given how much i read uh but but i'm definitely not splurging on things the way a lot of people are um, the way a lot of people do i feel like the, the the question you might ask the thing is like let let's conduct an experiment what if people stop spending money on things and they just they 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 basically just buy necessities and that's it if you were ever going to ask what would that look like and what would that do to the economy what exactly would happen I think we're we're getting that answer right now it feels like there are a lot of questions like it's just one big experiment like this is an experimental setting like you, you could wonder okay what happens to the environment, if human beings just retreat into their homes and do not go out. Like ecologically, what are the side effects of that? There was a podcast I heard about the Bay Area, like in San Francisco, coyotes used to be in the city. They've been driven out by human populations. Um, people have seen coyotes in the street. They've heard them howling. Like they've just found their way back into the city. Or I think they were here before the pandemic. In in parks, I think people saw coyotes. But I think they've been seeing more of them. Like, they've returned. It hasn't gotten too extreme. Like, I guess we'll know it's gone too far. If If I go out at night and look down at the street and it's just, there's a bunch of animals wandering around. It's not quite, it's not like the entire city resembles a zoo enclosure. Although that would be kind of funny to see that happen. I wonder how long it, it takes animals to, like, become adapted to this kind of massive change in human behavior. Like, if you When I was living in Southern California, there were mountain lions up in the mountains. Like, you could... Yeah, actually, I, I, I never saw one up in the mountains, but one time my friends and I were hiking, and on the drive back down like from the trailhead. This was through a residential area where there were houses. Uh, We saw one on the side of the road, like a mountain lion, just our headlights splashed on it. It was kind of a, you know, lackadaisy looked over at us like, hey, get that light out of my eyes, you assholes. But I mean, the mountain lions were up there. They were on the trails you could see one anywhere. I, I bet, bet I probably crossed paths with one at some point, just didn't know it. But they learned to avoid human beings. They were very skittish around. The, I, somehow they learned it's, you know, just this is not a critter you want to mess with. Like there's easier food uh other places. Generally, somebody still get killed by a mountain lion every now and then. But I mean, the fact that like people have beat this hasty retreat back into their homes. What 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 are what are animals out there learning from that? Like what are they adapting to this? Is it going to be that after the like a matter of months with us all just sheltered indoors, suddenly reemerging en masse, like the animals are going to say, wait a minute. We just learned something new. What the hell are all these people? And so suddenly there's going to be these collisions and these conflicts that arise, like this like, hey, we, we just moved into this territory because you guys stopped occupying it. We stopped seeing you around here. I wonder if there's going to be any of those after effects. I wonder if it's enough time for those sorts of lessons to happen. yeah who knows. um another experiment uh i have heard i've heard people say this they say like i i have learned that five days is too long to go without a shower i've i don't um i haven't tried that myself i mean i i take a shower every day I would take like six showers a day if I could, if I didn't feel bad about using the water and it wasn't such a time suck, I probably would just shower all. There's a lot of elements of my morning routine. When I first wake up, it's like the coffee, the shower, sort of the self care junk I do. I would just do that stuff all day if I could. I would try and figure out a way of carrying that stuff into at least into the evening. Yeah, but uh, I don't, uh, I would not, I have no inclination to really try that. Like Let's just not shower and see how long until it's just such a, a terrible situation that I, I feel I have to. I don't know who would do that. Like, yeah, this is now the time you could try it. This is like the only socially acceptable time when you could try it. So, But I just don't know what you would do with that information. Um running low on food. I tried to go to the grocery store yesterday. I've been trying to go late at night when there's few people in it. Uh and there there was a line at the entrance out into the uh, out onto the street. Like people standing six feet apart being let in in I, I don't know. Like I'm I'm I ended up bailing because I wasn't sure. Like, I was like, I'll just go today at some point. I, I hope they have a system in place because whatever they had was not working. I went down and grocery shop and people were... First of all, most people don't have their faces covered. The official story is you, you should have your face covered by something. However you can do it, you should have something when you go out and, of course, maintain six feet of distance. People are not doing that. Like, I will, I will try to give people a wide berth. Like, I, I will stay in places where there's potential to move around people so I don't have to pass people in the aisles. The aisles are not six feet wide. But other people just seem to be like, eh, whatever. They'll come around corners. They'll see you. They'll just, like, just blow right past you. I was like, I come to the end of an aisle and look out, look both ways, check for traffic. If anyone's coming, it's like, all right, I'll just back up about six feet, let them pass, and then go out. People, people are not doing that. And if you sometimes even people see you coming, they make no effort to get out of the way. Even if it's like you have to do something inconvenient, like backtrack, get into like a little nook. Press yourself up against the wall. They just, they just go walking by right in the middle. Like, eh, you know, it's no big thing. So people have not been acting responsibly. And this is, this is a big problem. We don't need this affecting grocery stores. It really concerns me that, Safeway in particular, I, like last week, somebody, somebody, somebody died of COVID 19 in one of the distribution centers. For Safeway in the Bay Area. I haven't followed up on that, but that is very disturbing. And even if Safeway has to close their other grocery stores, but still, that's not a good sign. So I I hope that they have a system. I hope that, like, the way they're letting people in, uh, from a line where they have to maintain six feet of distance. I hope they have a way of, like, shepherding around the store. Like, basically just engineering the result that nobody... People are not just wandering around in a kind of Brownian fashion to get what they need. Which is unfortunately how I shop. I really hope... I wish Safeway had like a map of this store online. Like if you want... if I could go online and make a shopping list and I know which aisle everything is in. And the aisles are in this order and I know the layout of the store... I could basically plan my trip through the place. So it wouldn't be like I'm in aisle five, I grab something. And just not regarding, not taking into account where things are, but just like the next thing is on aisle nine. And then the next thing happens to be in aisle six. And it's not like I know where these things are necessarily, I have to kind of wander a bit to figure out where they are. Yeah, it'd be nice to just be able to, to make a game plan so I could go in and just as efficiently as possible, get in, get out. And that, that would be especially helpful if they're now, if they're now ferrying people along a given route through the store, which I, I have to assume they're doing. If, they, if they're staggering letting people in and they're letting them in one group at a time it must be that they're it's like in the zoo if you go to the zoo, they have those, those animal tracks painted on the ground you're supposed to follow them. If there's one correct route through everything or it's like Ikea there's this big maze, you just you have to walk through the whole thing and if you forget something or miss something, like it's, well, that was way back. We The bookcases were, you know, 20 minutes behind us, so we're not getting a bookcase today. Ugh. That's the way they should be doing it. As inconvenient as it would be, that that would make the most sense. I don't know. It's getting later here. It's it 10 o'clock in the morning now. Like it's, They've been open for f- four hours, probably the daytime shopping crowd is there's, I, there's probably a line. I guess I could look out my, like, peek over the edge of my balcony, like crawl up on the, in the flower bed and look down and see, I could see the line from my place if I, if I gazed out. I don't know, but I'm, I'm definitely running low on food. I'm, uh, I've got, like, I bought, like, a huge block of cheese a few weeks ago, and that was getting moldy, so I just chopped the mold off and chopped it into cubes, threw it into a a grabbit. And I've been taking that with my medicine in the morning. I take a bunch of herbal supplements in the morning, like vitamins, and if I take those on a completely empty stomach, it causes nausea, so I've I've realized I should do what a dog does and just, like, put them into cheese and take the cheese, and it seems to keep me from wanting to feel like I'm going to throw up. Uh, but I have, like, I have this, like, Tupperware full of, like, cheese cubes. Which, you can't just eat those. I can't just eat those. If you're in college, go for it. Uh, Yeah, what else do I have? I have like a, um, I have some of that beyond beef. I got a package of that. Uh, that is interesting. Like this, the the impetus here was that in terms of like environmental degradation, in terms of like the impact you have on the planet, the fact that you're consuming meat, consuming stuff from the meat industry, like cows, chickens. This is, this is, this has a very negative impact on the planet because one, you have to clear land for cows to graze on, which means you're cutting down potentially trees just to give cows a place to like feed on grass. And cows are apparently very, very flatulent. I know they got like, I don't know how many stomachs, but these things are all producing like their digestive system is producing all this methane and they fart. Termites too. I heard termites produce like a, a significant portion of the of the methane that gets that makes sense actually to me, considering that there are more insects on the planet than anything else. Like the mass of insects is it's it's just huge. Like of course the sheer number of them those little things just producing tons of like methane. Which, in terms of greenhouse gases, is much worse than carbon dioxide. It's responsible for trapping more heat, on the average. Um, so there's there's the methane, the cow farts, uh, the clearing of land to prepare them for uh, grazing, this sort of thing. Okay, like if you want to, I heard somebody say, if you want to call yourself an environmentalist, don't eat meat or you can't call yourself an environmentalist if you are still eating meat. It's just those two things are so at odds. We haven't learned this yet. So there was somebody thinking about this 10 years ago. Like the, the composition of what's in meat, it's basically just proteins, certain kinds of proteins, uh, and a couple other constituents that theoretically, you wouldn't have to get from animals. You, you could produce those by other means. So I think the hypothesis was people want to eat meat. You're not going to eliminate that desire or that demand or that drive. So if you can't do that, come up with a replacement behavior. What is a, an acceptable substitute? And I think he, he developed this idea of, okay, I'm going to grow meat In a lab. And I think this is. This is the same idea. Behind the impossible burger. Basically. Plant based protein. Instead of having to. um... But so I got a package of this stuff. Maybe five weeks ago. Shortly after the. Like I wanted to get some protein. That wasn't red meat. Uh, I thought I would try this stuff uh meat grown in a lab and so i fried it up into burger patties uh i didn't have much like i didn't have buns or anything else to put on them i threw some cheese on top and melted that um, and then just ate the patties uh they they very much to me just nakedly like that with with cheese and some seasoning uh like some garlic salt and other they tasted very much to me just like meat grown in a lab. Like there, there's no way you could put them side by side uh, in a blind taste test and he, people would not be able to pick them out. They're not indistinguishable, not, not by far. I, I've heard that they're, oh, it's it, it's so similar to beef that it's just, it's the perfect, it, it it wouldn't fool anyone. It may be like if you want to shove a burger into your mouth, and you're being environmentally conscious. This, this would probably do the trick that you, you could buy this and fry it up in burger form and then eat it. And if you're throwing enough condiments on there, um, you're not paying too close attention. You're just warping it down like on your way to work in the car or something. You, you would, it, it would do the trick. You'd be like, okay, I just ate a burger. That was beef. Don't. Think about it too hard. It's a good idea. It's a really good idea. Uh, It's a very, very... That's the the correct way to think about it. It's not like, well, how how do we change human behavior? How do we get everyone to just sort of develop the same moral outrage at the meat industry so that they stop eating meat That hasn't worked. That, that, that has been a sentiment for a very long time. Like this is like Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle from the early 20th century. He was trying to like surface it to the entire nation, that the meat industry was, had some serious ethical problems. And it wasn't so much about the meat uh, or the quality of the meat or the lack of quality uh, it was about the labor force that was being exploited in order to produce the meat. Uh, and this this completely missed the mark. We ended up with some food regulations. Like we need to raise the quality of um, the output. But the actual process, like who's being hired, like the solutions to that or improvements to that did not come from uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. They came from the labor labor movements in the early to mid 20th century. I read that Upton Sinclair said he was, he was shooting for the nation's heart, but he ended up hitting its stomach instead. And this, is, this has been a familiar tune. There's, there's been lots of works talking about, oh, you know, the fast food industry, uh, the meat industry, there have been documentaries, people trying to be Michael Moore, shining a light on just how terrible this industry is, how inhumane we have to treat animals in order to mass produce this meat. And it, for some reason it just it doesn't really stick. Like p- people People watch them, but I don't think it changes their behavior. It's just too many... I don't know. It's not like if you buy red meat... And like, you take it home and you bite into it, like, whatever pain was inflicted on the animal in producing the meat, it's not like you hear the cow scream or shriek or what whatever they do when they're... You're so disconnected from, like, the suffering itself. So that never works. I don't know why we keep doing that. We keep making documentaries or Journalists go undercover and like write these. I'm going to expose the immorality of this industry, like the uh, unfair labor practices, as if people are going to start paying attention, as though that's going to drive change. And I'm being cynical. It does drive change. It's just much slower and more indirect than what the documentaries intended to accomplish. And I think that's why I'm being cynical. Like, isn't there a more head-on way of attacking these problems than just putting out a documentary and like trying to get people to adopt new policies that will improve the world. And I think that the whole notion of beyond beef, that's a, that's the perfect way to go. Like how do you create an alternative? You know, what's a feasible alternative to what exists that, that solves the basic problem. You have to displace whatever, um, is currently problematic with something that is at least less problematic. So, yeah, I've got this, this, I've got this like package of lab grown meat in my fridge. so I, I guess I'll eat. And, uh, oh yeah, bacon. I found a package of Costco bacon buried in the back of my freezer. I forgot I had that. Oh, but that's been wonderful. Bacon's one of those things I will not buy. It's too fatty of a meat. Like if I'm in the grocery store holding two things in my hand, like bacon and almost anything else, I will not buy the bacon. I can't bring myself to justify that in any way. It's like I'll just buy the chicken, the salmon, buy the lean protein, whatever it is. Ah, uh, but you know, I think, I think. I had an ex that left this behind, this, this big thing of Costco protein, or Costco bacon, which is protein. And so I've been frying that up, uh, just like a few strips a day. And it's a wonderful treat. It's just, I, oh, so good. Maybe I need to start buying bacon, like every now and then. Treat yourself. yeah maybe I'll just fast I'm not going to figure out how many days I can go without showering maybe I should see how long I can go without eating before it just gets to me although I can't imagine this is, this is probably not a good time to try that experiment either who knows what effects that would have on me mentally I'm already starting to kind of feel like on edge like on the scale of Willem Defoe in the lighthouse I probably should just be feeding my brain whatever the hell it needs you know Maybe cut it back, do more exercise. Meditating. I was talking to a a friend of mine from high school. I mentioned meditating and mindfulness, and he really was not familiar with the concepts at all. I was surprised by that. I I wonder if it's just because I live in California, I'm around all of this stuff that is, I I guess, traditionally regarded as somewhat foo-foo. Like it's sort of tied into New Age like I, I, obviously, San Francisco, people all around are doing yoga. There's a yoga studio like every few blocks. Uh, they're all over the place, and people are just doing yoga at home. It's a very common practice. But I, I don't think back east. I don't think this is more prevalent. I, I'm starting to pick up on. And this is something I've just, I've just, I haven't paid attention to. But the cultural differences between suburban Detroit where I grew up, and the cities in California that I've lived in. Like, I just kind of assume this homogeneity. I go back to Detroit, talk to people like, oh, yeah, yoga. And they're like, there are some people I will talk to from my hometown who are like, yoga? I'll give you like this raise one eyebrow, kind of look at you sideways. Like, you've got to be kidding. You're not doing that, are you? It's like, I've just accepted it as normal wherever I'm at. Probably the same thing is true coming the other way. Like, I came from Michigan, came to California, and I just assumed some things were normal everywhere. And they're, and they're not. The people are like, no, 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 that's not i I'm trying to think of an example. I can't remember. It's, I've been in California too long. I've been in the bubble too long. I've become one of you Californians. Probably, I've gotten used to no winter. I don't even notice that there isn't winter anymore. It's not like wow, it's January and it is not blisteringly cold out. I long ago stopped noticing that. Just every day. Just there's there's no winter. There's there's very little that can be characterized as what most of the country calls winter in the places I've lived in California. And, you know, that's just what I'm used to. No longer is that striking to me. People have told me, like, when I moved to California, people said that I had an accent. At some point, yeah, that came up. And I was like, really? I have... They're like, yeah, it's very clear you're from the you're not from California, you're from somewhere back east. Sounds midwesterny. It's not specific enough that we could tie you to Detroit, but you definitely have a very subtle way of pronouncing some of your vowels that is distinctly non Californian. I I could never hear it. I could never, I could never get what they were talking about. They mentioned some words that I said slightly differently, and I could, I could never hear it. It was too subtle. I don't, I'm not, not good at doing accents. I had a friend from uh, grade school who used to like call up a radio station with requests, and he would always fake this British accent. And he, he did not do a very good British accent. If I were if I were British, I would have probably slapped him. Like, what the hell are you? There's just no way. He played me a clip once. Like They, they actually referenced him. Because like, he wasn't on the air. He was just calling, asking for, you know, um, making requests. Uh, but some at some point, they mentioned him on the air. And the radio was like, yeah, there's this guy who calls in pretty regularly and asks for songs. He's got this British accent, which is... We're pretty sure it's fake, but I mean, we want to believe him, because why would anybody fake a British? Why indeed? Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm terrible at accents. I can't, I can't do it. Um, I'm kind of, I've heard like doing an American accent is hard, that's what people say. You're coming from another country even if you're coming from a country that speaks English, like to be able to do an American accent is, uh, it's one of those things I wish I could like look in on the, like what I, like the space that I occupy. I wish I could like get an outsider's perspective on it. Like if you grew up in like Ireland or something and you've come to America, what do we all sound like? Like what is, if you have some other center of, if you're, if you're coming from some other central place, like if you if your normal is like just slightly shifted, I don't know, that's what you can, that's what you can never do. I guess I just have to imagine that somebody in Ireland is saying the same thing. Like, what do the Irish sound like to Americans? I guess I'll never know. I know. Something you can never experience. It's my privilege. (laughs) It's not getting what you want. It's uh, wanting what you've got. Right? Mrs. Crow. That is your real name. But yeah, med- I'm surprised more meditation is it has so many benefits. I'm surprised that there would be people who haven't quite heard of it yet, but it just hasn't spread. It is like a magical pill that you could take, which improves your memory, reduces anxiety. Like It helps you cognitively in so many different ways. And there's there's no, I don't think we found any downside to it. It, it, it costs you time, it takes practice, to like, focus your attention like that. But there's, there seems like there's no reason not to do it. If we had kids meditating, if we had like, for every, I don't know, hour, of phone time, you had to earn that with like five minutes of meditation. Like I think you could get get away with a pretty small ratio like that um, it would it would have to help considering the benefits just have generation Z just so you guys you guys meditate your devices are going to shut off and you have to like achieve this certain state of mind in order for them to turn back on that just sort of built in forced fail safe Yeah. I don't know, that's a whole that's a whole thing. I I'm, I'm curious about that from a distance, like so many things. Like there's there there's so many mental problems that seem prevalent among young kids these days. Like kids who are now in college or just emerging. Uh that generation has got some real problems. There are some there are some issues there. I mean, if there's now probably would be a good time to to become a therapist, to become a psychologist, and to figure out how to how to treat these sorts of things, or a psychiatrist in particular. Because I, I, it seems like that's only going to get worse, regardless of what the cause is, even if we don't know, even if it isn't strictly social media or these these devices, like people living through their electronic gizmos. Um, yeah. I have a, uh, there's a family like my, my, my mother's brother, uh, my uncle. He is very conservative. Like they are orthodox Presbyterians, so very fundamentalists. Bible is literally true, and I think part of what drew them to well any form of christianity initially was this um this distaste for popular culture i'm I'm not sure it was so much that they were looking for a value system, so much as they were looking for an alternative to what. It's common, and they didn't like the fact that, like, for example, um, every like television being such a prominent element in our lives. Like, what is that doing to us? And even even understanding that television can be used for good. Like somebody says, let's let's have Muppets educate children. On public access television, so you get Sesame Street. Like for every one of, every Sesame Street, there are several programs that are probably not having any cognitive benefit for the viewer whatsoever. They're just a, a drain on time and attention and focus. That the internet is kind of the extreme of that. The best manifestation of the internet, the best thing on there is all the educational instructional material you can find on YouTube and educational sites like Coursera, Udacity, Udemy. That is like the highest realization of what technology can do. That is the highest ideal. Just pushing for democratization like in the availability, widespread access to education. I don't think we've fully seen how that's going to transform the world i wish i had the ability i wish i knew enough about this to talk for like an entire podcast about this but i i i think we still have like the lecture format there's still this idea of okay somebody's going to get on the screen and talk to you like explain the information to you and the audience is just watching from their homes instead of being in a lecture hall that format is is still what we're using. We've essentially digitized and put on the internet the old form of education, like the way education used to be when it was – I mean, this, this arose out of – this is the way it used to be. Like somebody would have the book. And most people sitting in the lecture hall could not read the book And so somebody would just sit up there and read it to them. At the very least, this came out of like old religious practices. Like if you you go back to the Roman Empire as Christianity is spreading, it is not that people are carrying around Bibles. Not even close. No, sir. You just have some people have these writings and they're getting up and reading them. And people are just listening to what's being read. Interesting. it gives the whoever's reading quite a bit of power because they can choose what to read and more importantly what not to read and this this evolves this ends up spreading into other so you have a literate person an educated person who's just reading off this material to a classroom even as people get literate we still have this form um I'm not sure we realize like the potential for education and in particular, how you change this top down structure uh, with some guy at the top of the pyramid and everybody else like different levels down below, like just paying attention to who's at the uh, at the apex. Like having it be more peer to peer. I think that's what the internet opens up the fact that it's more like a pa- packet switching network uh, you can have computers connect to each other instead of having to go through a central server it's like you, you could have education uh, spread could be like you, the mechanism of epidemiology it starts with one person and goes on to it's it spread to a couple others they spread it to a couple more Like, I don't think we've really realized that potential in in most areas. I guess there's somebody I know from Santa Barbara ended up founding a free code camp, which is a, a one of those code camps it's online and it's free and it it leverages this mechanism for people trying to jump into engineering as a profession like it's not so much that there there is one guy at the top there is this. This, uh, fellow, I know. And he's, he's, he's driving the whole thing. He's maintaining the website, kind of, kind of guiding the message that comes from on top, sort of advising people like high level, here are the trends. Here's what you should focus on and not focus on. And he was originally a teacher and he has essentially become like, yeah, in terms of like realizing your ultimate ideal, in terms of like realizing your potential as a teacher, I think he wins. He's done it. He's figured out how to mobilize a massive amount of people around an educational force that he kind of guides, but that is largely self-directing and driven by its community members. That is a radical idea. It's only facilitated by technology. And I, I don't think, I, I don't think we've realized that benefit in other domains yet. I think you, you it's hard to to figure out how to do that because it's not always clear. You don't always have like a self-driven, intrinsically motivated group of people who are like interested in helping each other, like basically making sure that the knowledge spreads. And where there's, you still have a mechanism of oversight in terms of the quality. You know, it's not, you can't just give any student in a lecture hall the keys to the car and let them drive. You have to maintain some semblance of centralized control over it and govern the information that's going out, make sure it's accurate. So it has to be like self-correcting. To the extent that it's self-directed, and if you're if you're talking about education, that's problematic because the people who would be overseeing the information that's coming to them, the whole point is they don't know enough about it to check it for quality. You just need that uh, need that quality built in from the get-go. So I don't know how you. Maybe I could talk about this for a couple hours, but I at least establish the nature of the problem. But I think that's, we haven't really, the fact that we've just taken a lecture hall from your average university and just thrown it online, that is certainly a huge step in the right direction. You wanna learn anything for free or low cost, just go online and watch the lectures. And you can do it at your own pace if you miss something, you can rewind and watch it again, watch it over and over until it sinks in, until you get the concept. It's massive. But I don't think we've, I think it's, we're, we're, we're climbing the hill. Like we haven't quite gotten to uh, the global max or even though like a local maximum in terms of what we can accomplish with education uh, using a tool like the internet. I think we're still figuring that out. And it probably will take an individual like, uh, the founder of Free Code Camp, people like that to, to mobilize, to build these systems and mobilize people around them in a way that serves the ultimate goal that you end up with people who are, uh, know the material and are able to disseminate that knowledge. And it's not, it's high quality enough that it's worthwhile. Yeah, it's kind of like the the communal the communal uh, equivalent of something like Wikipedia. The quality of information is tricky. Maintaining accuracy. Especially in places where it's uh, I don't know, things are politically divisive, like they're disputed, there's probably some Wikipedia pages that are just under heavy lock and key, and any change made to them requires, uh, manual approval. I don't know. Considering the way, uh, I guess I could see this being a problem. You really don't want education and certainly certain subjects in education to be driven by a crowd. Crowds are wise to a point, but I think the the idea that crowds will converge onto a correct answer, I think that is true where there is a correct answer, but I don't think it works quite as well when you let a if you let a, a crowd based on its knowledge amongst itself determine values it's, it's kind of like markets are very good at, at optimizing for certain factors if you decide for example that we need to fight climate change and the best way to fight it is x way like we need to do this if you if you create markets around that the market will figure out the optimal solution to the problem very, very quickly, they're amazingly good at it. They will find a very, very good solution to it. What markets cannot do is establish the problem of, should we tackle climate change in, in relation to other things? Like if we're gonna allocate our resources, do we buy guns or butter? Uh, this is not something markets can figure out. This is where the wisdom of the crowds cannot help you. You cannot converge on the correct answer. There has to be discernment uh, that is directed in a much more centralized way, even if it's informed by the masses. If there's a democratic process around it. That's, that's great. But it can't be, let's just have an answer emerge from the entire group. Because there is madness to crowds, uh, to borrow the phrase from the title of Douglas Murray's uh, book. like like The values that, that emerge inside of a population are not necessarily the ones you want to be persisted and codified and acted upon. If you're going by the wisdom of the crowds to determine proper policy or values, then you would have potentially the people who are advocating for the dissemination of guns, like for freedom, like basically that decision is made by them. It could be made by them. And so we end up having very lax gun control laws because let's say a faction of the population believes that to be the case. It's like you need this, this, this check in place. Like even if that is the prevailing public opinion. The the actual mechanism for changing that in public policy has to be much more entrenched entrenched. Like the anchor has to be set very heavily. And it can't just be dragged along willy nilly at the whims of the crowd. Yeah, I think Cultural changes too quickly. Like you would just experience the equivalent of political whiplash. Things would just oscillate way too quickly. You need like a stable nucleus. And you need to be like affected by what is in its orbit. But not, not governed by it. So something similar would have to happen here. You need some stable centralization. Um, You couldn't just like completely put it in the hands of the students. You can't have the students running the school. You can't have the inmates running the asylum. So I think it's how you establish a system that maintains that balance in just the right way. I think Free Code Camp does that remarkably well. From what I've seen, I think it's it's a perfect case in point for how you move education in this direction and and do it very, very effectively. I don't know, but that's not like you can't do that with every subject. People who want to learn how to be software engineers, they are intrinsically motivated. They're probably very, very smart people if they're resolving to do it and sticking with it for the long haul. they're probably very generous people. If you tried to roll out something like Free Code Camp for just some subject um, in school, like literature, that's much more broad. That casts a much wider net demographically over the entire population. Uh, which is not to say that you know certain demographics couldn't be interested in engineering or couldn't do engineering. That is not my point. But my point is that the people who are drawn to engineering right now are very self-selecting. People do not go down that road unless they want to. As an individual, you wouldn't just... It's not like the public school system where you say you have to learn English. You have to learn how to write an essay and learn how to read these books and interpret them uh, it's more, I'm going to go this path because I've chosen it for myself. So you end up with people that are, are motivated. If you tried to do this in public education, I'm not sure you would succeed. At the very least, the model you employ to to succeed would have to be at least tweaked. I think you would have to be different in some ways. It would be much harder to have like a, a self-organizing map of people that are propping this thing up. Again with the seriousness. I just went off on a I don't know. Thing is I have been watching television. I try to like watch television. Funny stuff. Stuff that is not that serious. Because I want to like absorb that. I want to like just get that sort of witty banter where I'm seeing characters just dig at themselves on screen, dig at each other, playful. I don't have enough playfulness in my life. I don't play. I underestimate the value of play. The notion of just like, you go into, you go into the playground, you start running around, uh, maybe some people get hurt. Like there's some cuts and bruises or scrapes, you know, occasionally some, maybe some feelings get hurt. But it's all in good fun. Like you all understand you're doing it, you're just trying to have a good time. Like that's just not where my brain goes naturally like if it, if it if the group goes there, I'll follow along to the extent that I can, but I don't just naturally go there. I don't quite know how to like get my brain going that way it's like if if, if i sit I can sit down and do like this just turn on this recording device and talk about. Like all of this, I haven't planned any of this. I didn't sit down and say, let's talk quantum computing, like how you could overhaul education in the digital age, blah, blah, blah. Like this is all just, I woke up, turned on this recording thing and started talking. And all of this has just sort of emerged. But if I wanted to do like a podcast that was funny, that was lighthearted, where there was banter, uh, where I'm cracking jokes, I would. I think I would have to sit down and plan that. I would have to make an outline, like tell this joke here. You could you could make this point, and it would be funny. Like, yeah, I'd have to like sit down and structure that, at least plan it out in advance. I'd at least come up with an outline of like lighthearted subjects that I could talk about that aren't super serious. I don't know. I have been told that I need to find my people. Like right now, I'm kind of like, where do I go in my life? I'm thinking to myself, what's the next step? What do I move towards? Uh, and I've, I've heard that what I need to do is find my people, like the people I just mesh with naturally. And I think I'm kind of afraid of doing that because I, I've definitely met people who are somewhat like me. Just very, very serious. Like you try and make a joke and they just, they, maybe they pick up on the joke, but they ignore it or it just completely goes in one ear and out the other. And they just, they just go right to a serious place. Let's analyze this. That's the way I am. When I'm on the other side of that and I'm just trying to be playful and somebody says, somebody takes that sort of attitude, it's so annoying. I think if I met myself, I would hate myself. I would just be like, you know what, I I just want to have some fun. Let's not, let's not go right to the serious stuff and analyze it to death. I don't know. So I guess kind of, I am kind of wondering, to what extent can I change that? Do I really have to resign myself to... If those are my people, do I have to be surrounded by people like that? Um, are those my people? Is that just who I belong among? I don't know. It doesn't always bother me. I certainly like having intellectual conversations with people. It's not like this. It's not like I'm, I'm this wouldn't be a problem if I was just always trying to joke and be lighthearted. And it was other people who went, went to intellectualism. And this always annoyed me. The way i describe that if that's the pervasive thing then i have the opposite problem and i don't i have i have intellectual conversations with some people um those people tend to be rare i I don't know a lot of people like that um yeah it's probably it's probably not so much a intellectualism is overbearing but it's a lack of attunement it's a lack of empathy or emotional awareness like what is the point i just made if 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 i am trying to play the levity card like hey let's joke about this i'm going to say something that's patently silly and absurd yeah you know, the person immediately takes it back to a serious place or puts it in a serious place it's like did you not just pick up the vibe i just laid down like the like the, the manner in which i said this you know did you not hear the tone of my voice, yeah i I don't know I don't know, but I think I think it based like i I probably am annoyed sometimes by intellectualism just because I know that it's so prevalent to me, and I wish it weren't. I wish it. I, I wish it weren't such a driving characteristic of my personality. There's, there's a. I forget who said it, or where the quote comes from, but it's that if something in another person bothers us, it's because we recognize that same thing in ourselves. We we know it's there, because what isn't a part of us does not, does not disturb us. So if you meet somebody and you pick up on some aspect of them that bothers you, it's probably because you. Know that it's in yourself and you don't like it in yourself. You're, you're projecting in some way. Probably that. I probably wish I was more lighthearted. Wish I was able to just go to a funny place easier. Could make funny jokes. I didn't have to take everything so seriously. So when I meet people who are like that, it's just, it's, it's just a mirror. It's me staring at my reflection and not liking what I see. Same could be said when I when I like meet somebody who's they're trying to make jokes but they're not funny. I'm like ah, oh, you're like oh, I feel bad for you, probably because I can't joke. I can't make jokes. Like I feel embarrassed for myself through them somehow. Vanity. Vanity. All is vanity. How long have I been doing this? I feel like I've been. Talking through this. Yeah, this is a long one. God. And with that, with the realization that I, I understand suddenly, I'm suddenly aware of how much time I've put into this so far. It's like realizing you're dreaming and you just immediately wake up from the dream like, oh, how long have I, been? as soon as you're checking the time, it's like, okay, that's probably a, a sign that it's like time to wrap things up. I don't know, one thing I never, I mentioned learning molecular biology earlier. One thing, that, one thing that was very, was not covered in any depth in any resource I've read was virology. Like in terms of, in terms of alien organisms, if you're going to look around our planet for things that might have come from outer space and are just weird, like viruses are about as close as you would get. It's, it's, it's crazy to look at viruses. Like, there's not much to them. They're just little bundles of RNA surrounded by a protective coating, and then some, I think, some means of locomotion, like a means of moving and a means of delivery. I really don't think there's, like, they're very, very functional. They have all of the elements that they need just to propagate and nothing else there's very little fat on them in terms of uh, appendages they don't need like the peacock's tail to mate they don't need to waste their resources they're very efficient this is probably why they hold dominion over us we're so complicated needlessly complicated organisms they're just little efficient robots must make more of myself and they know they know exactly how to do it and they're so good at doing it definitely better than mammals you know how many how many women and people like the children themselves die in childbirth i don't know what those numbers are globally But the, the mechanism, like, okay, so of course they're not aliens. Like, I'm not saying viruses came from outer space because they're made of RNA. And insofar as we don't think our nucleic acids uh, arrived on this planet from an external source, but probably just came about accidentally through some random process. And some primordial soup. Um, they're, they're probably terrestrial. They're definitely earth based. RNA is just as much a, a part of, uh, you know, us, something that we need as, as anything else. Um, but the, the mechanisms for how, how they function. How they interact, like if you, if something gets inside of you, uh, what it does and how you can fight it, how you can mitigate it, the process of developing a vaccine to treat these things. These were never covered in any detail. The closest I ever got was I read a book about antibiotics which is more complicated than I had to dive into because it was a lot of biochemistry. Um, it was basically going through the history of uh, antibiotics as we developed them over time, talking about the, the pathogen that it was treating, how the cure was found, how it was developed, its limitations. And of course, talking about how these solutions uh, are on the clock the diseases that they are treating we're not being smart about how we use antibiotics we're not limiting their applications to cases of need and so the the underlying pathogens that the antibiotics are treating are evolving resistance to the antibiotics very very quickly and this is already starting to cause problems like the number of people dying from antibiotic resistant bacteria or diseases is is slowly rising. This is one of those things that like, just like five, ten years ago, you can go back and you can find people in corners of, uh, you know, Netflix or the internet or in old papers saying like, yeah, you know, there's going to be a global pandemic. It's going to happen. We don't know when, but eventually these viruses are going to without meaning to get their act together and attack us. People have been saying that's coming for years and that we're not ready for it and nobody has listened. It's gonna be the same with antibiotics. Like deaths will slowly rise. It'll be like a frog in water. It won't come on us all at once, but people will wake up at some point to the idea that, to the reality that yeah, there are, there are a lot of people dying from these diseases that we previously had developed cures for or at the very least that we had treatments for the treatments are becoming less and less effective i i wonder what the timeline is for that i i, I haven't looked into that i know it's as this is going to happen in the next century a lot of people are going to die because we're not being responsible about how we're using antibiotics somebody figured out that if you put antibiotics into cows, for example, uh, they will, I think they, they will, they will either grow to maturity quicker or they'll get fatter. Maybe it's chickens, some livestock that we have. If you pump them full of antibiotics, they will, it will optimize a certain end. Like you will get larger livestock faster. You'll get more meat per animal. We don't know why, but we know the outcome, and so we've just been saying let's let's pump them full of antibiotics and optimize how much we can extract from each animal and this is this is one widespread use that is, of course, giving the enemy uh, a chance to learn. It's uh, expanding its uh, its classroom, so to speak, it's giving it more of a chance to get an education and how to uh, develop resistance to our, to our weapons against them. And this will come back to bite us. And we know it. People are saying it, but we're not going to do anything about it uh, until, basically until we're being reactive. That seems to be the nature of, on a global scale, that's, that's what we are on a national scale. People can say there's a problem, but we're drowning in so much information and so much of it is untrustworthy that when you hear of a problem that is really dire and is a mortal concern, we just don't take them seriously anymore. Like we need to have people stop telling us things. We need we need better filters for this kind of information. Like it's not I guess I'm gonna like slowly walk my way to the trite point of uh if it bleeds it leads. But just reporting things. Everything has to be a headline, everything has to be an emergency because that drives human attention. But then if everything is an emergency, then nothing is an emergency. And so it's like crying wolf when a real emergency comes along. When somebody says, Dr. Fauci goes on TV and says, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a pandemic. It's going to be bad. And we are absolutely not ready. It's just it gets lost in the sea of other things that we need to worry about. with the seriousness how do i get off that we to go get some vitamin d go sit in the sun just fry my brain i'll come back and be slightly ah, less less serious yeah maybe i should go grocery shopping no, i really don't want i'm trying to think of the, maybe i should go grocery shopping someplace else I'm trying to think of, of another market that isn't too small that you could go shop at. It's not a mile away. Yeah, I guess if this Safeway shuts down, that would really... I'm not really sure what my fallback would be in that contingency. I guess I'd have to start just ordering things online. I still have never done this. I've never... What are the companies that do that? Like, if you order something from a restaurant, you can hire somebody, probably via an app of some kind or other, that that you can pay somebody to go pick it up for you and bring it to your house. I've never done this. DoorDash. It's maybe something I should give a try to. Like, not... I wouldn't want to make a habit of it, but just now I'm kind of thinking... Restaurant food sounds so luxurious. I've just been eating so simply, like steam some vegetables, cook up some protein, just very simply, uh, you know, eat some nuts, peanut butter, oatmeal, just the staples that I typically use to fill most of my meals prior to the quarantine. It's now just, that's just all of my meals, eating as simply as possible. Getting all the nutrients I need. Just break down, you know. Uh, oh man, I, I, the expression just popped into my head was uh, pop the cherry. I hate that expression. Um, What, uh, I'm trying to think of an alternative. Yeah, basically pop my cherry on these, on DoorDash. Like, just say, you know, I can't go out and get, like, a, a burrito. Like, a massive burrito that's the size of, like, an infant from one of these Mexican places. Uh, so I'm just going to order one online and have it delivered. There's the whole meal. Yeah, just, just do it once. I don't know how much longer this goes on. I think we might be halfway through it. Officially, I think it was, it's was it been five weeks. I've been in place for six weeks. It's probably gonna be at least till the end of May before it's you can put on a mask and go wandering around and, and interact with people in a limited fashion. I don't know, I'd like to get a little more than halfway before I, I Break down and you know uh, give um, an order some food and have it delivered. It's not the con- it's not a convenient thing to do where I live either. like people cannot get into my building and come up to my unit. They would have to go they'd have to first of all find the front desk. I'd have to go down and meet them. It's it's just this whole ordeal. Like having food delivered to you just seems so. I don't know. That that is that is completely a luxury. It's just um. It's unnecessary risk. Same reason I'm trying not to order too much online. I have like a, my Amazon cart is full of things that I need to. I'm running out of basic supplies, toothbrushes, um, you know, soap just have a cart full of these things and I'm going to wait until trying to wait as late as I can, get as much in there as I can and just, uh, order all that stuff at once. just, just one shipment. I hope it's one set of boxes and I hope that that just gets me through. I don't have to do it again. Just trying to minimize how many, how much stuff the poor postal workers have to carry around. And, uh, the number of trips they have to make, but yeah, maybe I'll just fast today. It seems like as soon as I eat, the days kind of like starts going downhill from there. It could be that I just I I don't know why I would have to eat right now. Like I guess my brain I have to eat just enough so that my brain has enough calories. But I'm not really I am exercising. I'm doing high intensity training. I used I haven't done yoga in a, in a probably two weeks now. I don't. Know, I should probably get back to that. And I'll go wandering around on my terrace, but I'm not expending that many calories like considering how much i've been eating relative to how much burning of the calories i've been doing i'm surprised i haven't gained any weight it's just keeping the brain going i suppose maybe that's uh <clears throat> strange times strange times. Oh, yeah, the anti-vaxxers, too. I haven't heard much from them. I hear that those conversations in those circles online, it's really tapered off is what I've heard. I'm sure that they're still out there, and I'm pretty sure that's not going to go away, but... I don't, at some point don't you have to kind of accept the reality that there is, there is now a pathogen that is going around killing people and our one hope long term for like uh, mitigating its effect on us right now. The best solution we know is a a vaccine to develop a, a weapon against it. at some point, wouldn't you have to say there is a disease going around? You can choose to die of the disease or you can choose to get the vaccine. And I guess I don't know. I I haven't met anyone who is an anti-vaxxer. I would like to because I would like to know precisely why if you had a kid and it was, you have to inoculate them against potentially dying of some diseases uh, with the risk of them developing autism and them dying. Why would you rather your kid faced the risk of dying instead of the risk or even the certainty, if you will, if you, if you prefer, of autism? is autism really that bad? Is autism worse than a potential death sentence? Like that seems to be the trade-off and it seems to be anti-vaxxers are picking one over the other and generally it's the wrong one. But I don't understand the logic there. Like you would really like talk about the, the First of all, this is assuming all this is true, and of course I don't believe this. There's no clearly established link, from what I've been able to gather, between vaccination and autism. I don't think we know clearly enough what causes autism. Uh, yeah I don't, I don't understand why the um, like, what does that say to a person who's autistic like, yeah I, w- I would really rather my child die than end up like you I, I'd rather take the risk that they, they get measles or smallpox or something um, take on that risk instead of take on the risk or certainty that they'll be autistic That's astonishing to me. I don't know how you could I don't know. I guess I guess I don't know how people generally feel about autism. Like if, if I went to some place that wasn't the Bay Area, some place that isn't enlightened scientifically, it isn't generally accommodating of diversity. So I think what is it, neurodiversity? Is that the phrase they're using for it, for this particular, are basically accommodating people who are both somewhere on the autistic spectrum and neurotypicals. Like if you went somewhere where there wasn't tolerance for these things, there wasn't acceptance of these things, just de facto, and you ask them about autism, what, what does the average person in the middle of the country say? If you go to the deep south where there's just people are wearing their prejudices on their sleeve but they just think of it as a form of retardation. Oh, autism, yeah, that's like... People are definitely against, I mean, people who are less than mentally capable um, having kids. So there, there is always a line. There is always... You can do anything a normal person can do, but I think this is what this is Louis C.K. joked about this in his latest special. If you haven't watched that, go watch it. It's worth the eight bucks, or you know, if you feel you have to torrent it, if you don't want to support him financially. But I mean, I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't begrudge him. This is um. This is this is precisely what I'm confused about. So I there was a tweet from Roxanne Gay. Who wrote a book called Bad Feminist? When I was reading feminist stuff, I picked this one up, and she's writing from the perspective of I'm a feminist and she's a, uh, she's black. And interesting perspective. She, she was on Twitter, and in the wake of Louis C.K. and his little sex scandal coming to light, um, I saw somebody post the question on Twitter to Roxane Gay, like, Please let us know when Louis C.K. can perform again, when it's permissible. And Roxanne Gay responded to this with something. I think she said, bitch, I will, don't hold your breath. I don't really understand the mentality that went into the question or into the answer. The notion that there's any individual out there whose decision it would be, like they ha- they're an arbiter of when when we've moved past this mistake that Louis C.K. made and we've forgiven him enough that he's allowed to perform again. That that there is anybody out there who is an arbiter. That there should be, or that this arbiter ought to be Roxanne Gay. And she takes it on herself to be this arbiter and she says, yeah, you know, I I haven't forgiven him and it's not going to be, it's going to be a long time. He really screwed up bad. Like, really? When did we start looking around for people like, I need to like outsource my moral compass. You know, I'm going to like delegate my moral outrage about this to Somebody that I look up to, some author who writes stuff in women's studies, cultural studies, sociology, the public figure. I'm going to figure out what they think and I'm going to defer to them, figure out how pissed off I should be and for how long. What kind of way of thinking is that? I don't know. Maybe I'm not being fair. I certainly look to certain public figures for opinions, but I'm not accepting them wholesale. I might accept them. I'll walk around with them like I'm trying on a new sweater. But I'll see how they feel. Like How well do they hold up to reality? Like you, How comfortable are the shoes? Do they seem like the right shoes for me? Are the shoes appropriate for the terrain I'm walking on? Like You kind of have to assess things. You have to try on ideas like you would try on I uh, have like, like an article of clothing. I think you have to be adaptable, I think. You certainly can't just let somebody pour stuff into your head and take it that way. But I guess, I don't know, I, I guess I have to concede that if you're, if you're going outside yourself, if you're looking to others for their opinion and you're at least taking it into account, like what would Roxanne Gay say about what happened with Louis C. K. How does she feel about it? Okay, she hasn't forgiven him yet. I guess that's the takeaway. If you look at the spirit of what's being said and not the literal content, I I guess it's not quite as bad as I'm interpreting it. It's not as not as annoying. Uh, so there's there's another question I'll raise here at the end. I, I so I recorded a, <clears throat> I recorded a podcast last night, like very, very late. I spoke for about an hour about like dream analysis and the principles behind that. And I kind of realized at the end, like this is, I, I'm just going to bury this. I'm like half awake and I'm talking about something that there's that there's no way I can make a case for this. It's too boring. But I, I, I talked through a point yesterday that I think I could touch upon here. I do want to like re-examine it in the light of day. Uh, So it seems like in terms of like tolerance, like like again, I'm in San Francisco, I'm in the Bay Area. People tend to be pretty open about things here. And I kind of wonder just how open this is. Like people generally are pretty, I go online and read articles by strangers. You hear people in conversations. It seems like people are, Readily admit that they are in therapy. Like this, this seemed to be something that you used to just conceal. Like you would never tell people, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in therapy." I, like, oh, there's something, there's something wrong with me. I'm damaged psychologically somehow. Like this was just, you should never let anybody know this. It was just a shameful secret. Um, I rather like that this is not strictly a stigma, at least in the circles that I run in and the things that I read, the people I encounter, the culture that I live in, even if only locally. Because I don't think it is something that should be stigmatized. I think it's actually something that's a good deal, easier to deal with. In the majority of cases, in the cases of just like garden variety neuroses, if you're able to be open with the people around you, if you're able to say, you know, like, Oh, you know, I have, I have anxiety. This is forgive me. Like, I think it becomes much more manageable. You, you can, you can accommodate people around you who have these things better and it, it just helps not to carry it around like a secret. If you have to hide it for fear of social stigma, that makes it all the worse. It becomes such a, it's so much a heavier load. There's a, there's a, there's a series on Netflix. Sorry, it's not on Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime, I think, called Modern Love, Modern Romance. And a few episodes of this were really, really good. Each episode is separate. It's its own story. And one of them stars Anne Hathaway, who is bipolar. Bipolar. And it's not immediately clear that she's bipolar. She's, she's going out one morning and she's just very happy. And, uh, you know, uh, she runs into a guy in the supermarket. It's like a fairy tale. Everything is like brighter than it should be. The cinematography just is over the top. Everything's really colorful. And she's way happier than she should be for like shopping for fruit in a grocery store at, uh, you know, probably seven or eight in the morning. And she ends up meeting a guy, asks him for a date and she goes home. And later she kind of like, just gets into her bed and cannot move. So we, we, we first meet her when she's, um, I don't remember. Like we first meet her in a state of mania or hypomania. And then she, she falls into the depressive cycle and she's there. And so, She ends up having the date with the guy when she's still depressed and she's a completely different person than the person that he met. And, you know, she has to come back to him later and say, you know, let's try this again because I'm feeling better. When she she swings back into the manic state, um, she tries to line up a second date and tries to like get her life together so it looks fine. And, uh, you know, it, it's, really, it's really quite touching. Um, but the, at the end of the episode, I mean, it, her job is a kind of a background thread. It's focusing on how it affects her romantic life. But she ends up getting, re- like, basically fired from a job because she can't consistently show up. She's managed to hold a job because when she's manic, oh, she can do the work. So if she's absent for, you know, a few days at a time because of a depressive episode, she will come back and more than make up for it in her manic state, which is, from from what I understand about bipolar, roughly what you would expect. But it gets to the point where there's not enough consistency. She gets let go. And at the end of the episode, she's having coffee with her boss, her former boss, her former coworker, I don't remember, but she ends up telling her, you know, like I, I have bipolar and her, her coworkers is like, I, why didn't you tell me that? I never knew. And, uh, ends up staying behind. They, they have lunch together and just, uh, listens to what she has to say, you know, very compassionately. And, you know, the, the, the resolution and Hathaway's character is like it just felt like unloading some massive ton of bricks by telling telling somebody after that it was all it was all like downhill everything just got easier I told one person the world doesn't end and you feel like you can tell other people you feel it becomes a manageable thing once you just initially I don't know. Poke a hole in the dam. Things just flow. Yeah, highly recommend you you check that out. But it's the whole notion of secrecy. So I like the idea that we're, as a culture we're moving in the direction where you can say I'm in therapy. And honestly, so there's one, there's one thing somebody told me. Like my ex, my ex girlfriend's mother said this to me a long time ago, but she said there there are two types of people in the world. There are people who have been to therapy and there are people who have not been to therapy yet. So I think what you're supposed to take away from that is that it's, it's a foregone conclusion that there is something wrong with everyone and that everyone ends up on a therapist couch at some point. Um, I don't, I don't know if I I care for that exactly, because I think you could argue that everyone is, I guess, maladapted and there is no real normal blah, blah, blah. But I would rather liken it to this. I would, I would rather say, um, therapy is like something like going to a gym. It's like exercise. Like you, you definitely can go your entire life without doing it. I think you can be just fine. I think most people would be. And there are some people who are so physically unhealthy, like their physical health gets to a point. The factors in their life are just so out of balance that really they need they need to get exercise. Like they need to work it into their lives. They, they need to make a point of doing it just to fix whatever problems are in their lives. They're, they're at risk for heart disease or or, or diabetes, they're pre-diabetic, you, you have to, like, start, you have to go get physical exercise, you have to go to the gym, and then, like, there's a lot of people who don't have to go to the gym, but for anyone who chooses to, it's probably not a bad idea, like, it, it unless you overwork yourself to the point of injury, uh, you're probably better off getting exercise than not. So I would say it's like that. I like that better because I don't like the stigma of you should only go to therapy if if you accept that there is something wrong with you. I think that if you presuppose that, then then there is a stigma. And if you say to somebody, Hey, you know, consider therapy, people don't want to think that there's something wrong with them. So they're inclined to shy away from that. No, I'd, I'd rather not. I'm aware of the stigma. If you sell it to them as it's just mental fitness, you're just going to optimize what is already working very well. Like you're fine, but you can iron out some of the kinks and really streamline what's going on in your head and streamline your efficiency as a person, your efficacy as a person. That I think is an easier sell, like if people were to to seek it out more proactively instead of like waiting for something to go wrong, waiting for things to get so extremely bad that you, you just you can't avoid it. Somebody in your life says you have to go talk to a psychiatrist or talk to a therapist. you got to work it out. If it was something that people just felt more, I'm going to go do this because it's mental calisthenics, I, I, I think that's the attitude to have towards it. And if that is the attitude, then it's, it's not a stigma. It's, it's not clear that like you, you, somebody could say, I'm going to see a therapist or a psychiatrist. And it's not because there is something so wrong with me that I, I, first of all, if there is something wrong with you. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but you just don't, don't assume that there's a problem that's so extreme that you have to shy away from the person. Maybe the person is just going to the mental gym and they're trying to keep themselves fit. This is admittedly a very expensive gym. Uh, this, is not a, this is not a cheap gym. People, these kinds of trainers are very, um, have a lot of very specialized knowledge and their hourly rate is of course much higher. Um, but yeah, the st- stigma of therapy, the fact I think it, it should be something people seek out as much as they can, or as many people should seek it out and as early as possible. Because I, I think there's there's very few people who wouldn't benefit from it, at least in some small way. And if if you wouldn't, if you go for like a few weeks and it turns out you're fine, I mean that's that's all the more. But especially with I touched upon this earlier, like Generation Z, like that generation coming up, the, it's going to be tough to convince a lot of them. That there is something wrong with them. I think this whole idea of, whatever the cause might be—if it's social media, if it's the devices, whatever is causing this this spike in mental illness—and it's coupled with the kind of arrogance that you know, I, I'm fine. Like I know everything. Like, every generation seems to have the conceit that it, it doesn't need to consider what its elders are telling it it just is inclined to figure it out for itself which is probably more of a strength than a weakness i mean if you're determined to live your life and to figure things out like you gotta do that if we were wired to just listen to what our parents told us all the time i don't know i had kind of just in my head imagining what that leads to if you play that out to the logical extreme that is that is a very that is a boring world and a world that is not capable of adapting. There are, I think the most important lessons are the ones you can't be taught. You, you need to have this headstrong, okay, I'm going to dive in. I, it might be too early to tell people who are currently in college or have just gotten out like People who make up Generation Z, who are seeing all this mental illness, I don't know what happens when they get older, when they finally get to the age where you're supposed to be able to look at yourself with some perspective and say, you know, maybe I don't know everything, maybe I do need, they might get there. Probably, I I would guess most of them will, like every generation before it. But you, you wanna maximize the number of them who are going to accept like, yeah. Okay. Even if there is nothing wrong, maybe therapy is just a good idea, like as a kind of a matter of mental hygiene. Go to the gym. Go lift some weights. Go, go, go do some cardio. If there's nothing wrong, really no harm done. A little bit of time, some money, kind of just, but at least you'll know. If you go to the doctor and get your annual physical and you get a clean bill of health, at least you have the clean bill of health. You have the, the peace of mind to know, okay, I'm fine. There's not like some creeping anxiety issue, something that's affecting me. Even if there's something mild affecting me that isn't, doesn't require treatment, at least I've gone and talked it through. It's like meditation. Like you, what's the downside besides the, the, the cost in time and money to the individual? Carl's, the book I was talking about earlier, Carl Jung's book about psychological types. Like his original uh, body of writings that eventually lead to the uh, Myers-Briggs. Like introverted and extroverted are the basis of it, but there's other elements of personality. Like there's there's thinking, sensation, intuition. These dimensions that make up the Myers-Briggs categories. These apparently go back to the Gnostics an early branch of Christianity that just ended up going nowhere. But essentially it's it's its interpretation is that in order to find God, you look within yourself. There there are non-canonical books from the New Testament, or sorry, that are not in the New Testament. This is what makes them non-canonical. Things that were written about Jesus that did not make it into the Bible. And one of them contains the, the, the saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And this is, this is actually in Luke. It actually is in one of the Gospels in the Bible. But basically taking that idea and developing it more. Like if your leaders tell you heaven is in the sky, the birds are going to beat you there. If your leaders tell you, you know, uh, it's in the sea, the fish are going to beat you to it. Just look, go inside of yourself kind of this, this, this whole Christian rebel, like this Jesus saying like, yeah, don't, don't follow leaders. That's right. Bob Dylan was like Jesus, at least the Gnostic Jesus. <laughs> but the, the, these ideas, uh, these, these categories that Young uh, sort of defined the functions of human thinking, how do you assess who a person is as an individual? I don't think people were really trying to do that in the days of the Gnostics, but they had these ideas, um, thinking, uh, sensation, intuition. These categories came from Gnostic concepts in early Christianity. And of course, Carl Jung does talk about this, but they we have objective psychology. We, have, we, we, we are trying to make it as scientific as possible in so much as we're trying to look at another human being, remove our own biases that are like warping our perception and try to make sense of the other person. It's like you can't really peer into them directly. And whatever you're perceiving is going to be warped by who you are. And so it's hard to get to objective truth when it comes to psychology because we're in our own way. It's like trying to look into mirrors facing each other and seeing all the way into that infinity. Like you're always, your head is always in your own way. You can't see very far. It's that challenge. But it didn't used to be like that. The emphasis on the individual and understanding the individual is a very new idea. I mean, culturally, I don't think it's what we're used to. I've, I of course object to it because of my whatever intellectual sensibilities because of, because I grew up in the, at the end of the 20th century. And this is, this is not something we value, but I do look at like religious fundamentalists. People who are very orthodox have a very literal interpretation of things which simply cannot be literally true. And there's sort of a hive mind to it. Like, I'm not going to worry about how accurate this is relative to anything else. I'm just going to plug into this body of knowledge with these other people. And this is how I'm going to operate. I mean, as nutty as that sounds, it does kind of sound like Eastern philosophy, like this notion of there is a holism to it. Let's kind of kind of communally accept these things. Let's not all individually assert you know, our individual personalities. Let's not let that bring us into conflict with each other. Let's just let's just accept certain parameters collectively as being true. And there's There's a kind of cohesion in this. There is the hive mind. And of course we all do this. We all do this in some aspects of our lives. I mean, for for me, it's intellectual, different realms. Like in work, for example, I accept the parameters of how you ought to think about writing code, how you ought to think about computer science. If there's any wiggle room getting away from, you know, the convergent nature of mathematics, like the mathematical properties, there's only one right answer. But where there's any room for individual interpretation, trying to get aligned with the other people that you're working in tech with. Kind of a, how do you create software that's maintainable? How do you work with people to develop a product in a way that is going to be successful, like the whole whole lean startup, the notion of four steps to the epiphany, whether the school that uh, the school of thought that Stephen Blank gave rise to, you know, the customer development, ask your customers questions, start with the minimum thing, and iterate on it into something that you can sell profitably. At some point, you don't want everybody, you don't want to try and solve these problems for yourself. You just want to, you you just want to figure out what other people have learned, what they have discovered, what they've, you know, assessed to be true. And just lean on that. You have to do that in most areas of your life. And it, it, I, I'm of course skeptical of the idea that if you're if you're thinking of a value system, like what are your morals, I'm not sure you should delegate that. I'm not sure you should plug into a, a hive mind to figure that out. But I think that's basically what people are doing. It, it's outsourcing. It's outsourcing your morals. The way the person I talked about on Twitter is pinging Roxanne Gay, like I'm outsourcing my sense of moral outrage. How angry should I be and for how long? What should I think is right or wrong uh, you know, uh, in general? What should I believe about uh, my ability to transcend mortality? I don't th- you got to think for yourself in some categories, but you can't do that everywhere. You got to accept that there are some things you just We all take some things on faith. You can't be empirical everywhere because nobody got time for that. Okay. I've hit the three-hour mark here. I think that is, that is long enough. I've just, I've, if nothing else, I've proven to myself that I can sit here and do this for three hours. This has been great. It's taken my mind off of food for the morning. I'm halfway through the day. I'm just fasting. I'm going to go get some sunshine. This has been great. Let's do this again sometime. Uh, if you're listening, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to whoever you are. Um, I wish you the best in this pandemic. Keep up hope. We're going to get through this together. We're going to emerge victorious on the other side, most of us. I hope that you stay healthy as well as your family, friends. I hope you're maintaining your sanity through this difficult time, uh, and continue to do so. Uh, so until next time, uh, thank you. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.